Okay, so, so this morning we're uh, going to talk about honesty. Um, it's uh, it's a virtue I think we're all attracted to, but at the same time all very scared to exercise. Normally what we do as a church is we go through a book in the Bible, we kind of look at one particular book like Jeremiah or Isaiah or... Um, uh, we just finished 1 John, and we would just go through the book verse by verse. You know, like, what is the, uh, the author's intention, the original audience, try and understand and get deeper into it. It's very good. That's a good way to get the details. But I think it's also good from time to time to get a broad view of what the entire Bible says about, like, one subject. So instead of being in 1 John and, like, five verses in 1 John or whatever, we're going to look up basically for, like, from Genesis to Revelation. What does God say about honesty? What does that mean about ourselves? What does it mean with others? What does it mean uh, towards God? Um, and really what we're doing is, uh, so we go through the books, but in between those books, we go through Redeemer's core values. You may not know that Redeemer actually has core values, but we do. Um, about a year ago, most of us um, were together and kind of hashed some of these core values out. Here's the other, one, the other ones, by the way. Generosity that we already hit in January for about three weeks. <clears throat> Beauty. Commitment, honesty, which we're talking about today, risk, multiplication, and movement. So we're going to be peppering those other bigger ideas and what the whole Bible says about those ideas throughout the year, probably throughout the next couple of years. Um, but uh, after this week, we'll go in. We'll be in the Book of Micah for a bit, which is an idea of where we're going. But first, uh, let's just get back to honesty. So we love honesty. We love people who are honest. And we, always, we have, hopefully you have that friend that, you know, maybe they get into trouble because they're a bit too honest because they say what they think all the time. But it's always helpful to have to know that what someone is saying to you is like actually what they believe. Like it's like, oh, does this shirt look good? Like, oh yeah, of course it looks good. <laughs> you know, that is not very helpful. You, what you want is someone who's honest is going to say, no, it looks horrible. You look completely fat. Um, so we love honesty, but we're not often honest. And uh, it's, it's interesting because it's a virtue that we all want and we all appreciate, but often like we don't feel like generally we're the most honest people. I find that very interesting. So I, I went on Facebook, uh, the land of dishonesty, and um, asked people what they fear, like, why are you not honest? What are some things you might fear? Here's some things that people said. They're actually really great. Uh, someone said, I fear that people are only tolerating me and don't actually like me. So that's why I'm not honest with myself. Uh, I have a fear of rejection, a loss of respect, maybe loss of a job, pride, fear of being taken advantage of. If I open up, they may use it against me or not like what they see. And also the fear that I don't have what it takes to be the person that I want to be. I mean, mine is like if people really knew me, then they would really not accept me. And therefore, I can't really be honest because if they accept my real self, I can't handle that. That would be horrible. So I refrain from being honest. I mean, does any of that like strike a chord with you guys a little bit? Yeah, I think there's some of that maybe in all of us. Well, we aren't honest because we don't think people will accept us as we are. So we fear rejection, so we're not honest. But if people accept us within our dishonest selves, that's not even real acceptance either because we're not really being our true selves. So I think we have this idea that we can either be uh, uh, accepted and dishonest or it can be honest and rejected. So honesty and acceptance are not in the same boat. And that's not a great way to live. We want both of those things. We want to be honest and also we want to experience acceptance. And when you're afraid to show who you truly are to others, when you're afraid to show who your true self is, that's called shame. And we're going to talk about shame in a bit. I think shame is something that we all suffer from, we all experience it, and we need to talk about that uh, in a little bit. Generally, our response to shame is to present like a better version of ourselves. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not enough. So if I like present myself to be a little bit better, even just like 1% better, then maybe people are going to like me. 
So we'll talk about that image management in a bit as well. I think first, let's just stop and just say, clearly we have a problem, right? We have a problem with honesty. We can't do it ourselves. And Jesus has come to give us new lives and new hearts. So how does that apply here? Because I think sometimes it's easy to get that we've been forgiven in the past, as amazing as it is. And sometimes it's, it's easy to get that we have like an eternal home with Jesus, as amazing as it is. They have this all this in-between space of like, then what does it mean to like, what does Jesus mean for me right now? That's what we're going to talk about, how that applies to honesty. What we're going to see through some of these verses that we're going to look throughout the Bible is that Jesus removes our shame, offers his radical acceptance, and through his radical acceptance, that frees us to actually really, truly be honest in a way we couldn't be before. So Jesus removes our shame, radically accepts us, and frees us to be honest. And so that's where, these are the three main points we're going to go through that would be up right here if we were in a place. Um, one, we aren't honest. So we're going to get into that a little bit. Because I think we, yeah, I'm not honest, but then I think what we really need to be is like, I'm really not honest. I think, so that's where I think we need to go first. The second is that we are radically accepted. And the third is that we are radically changed. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Playing superheroes or something. Um, should we do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, be honest with me. Um, so let's talk about where we aren't honest. because we. So we aren't honest because we fear rejection. What would you say the opposite of honesty would be? Don't say dishonesty. Um, what, what's the opposite of honesty? Lies. Hmm? Lies. Lies. Anything else? Insecurity. Yeah, security. Hmm. Uh, hypocrisy. Yeah, hypocrisy. Yep. Yeah. Deceit. Yeah. That kind of is on all that but interesting insecurity thing we'll get to that in a bit mm. uh, the, one of the passages that Kathleen read was Jeremiah 17.9 the heart is deceitful above all things mm. and beyond cure who can understand it I, mean, if, uh, I don't know if you have that still in your Bible we're, we're going to be there for a little bit um, the heart is deceitful above all like above all things like above everything the heart is deceitful like all things I mean of all things that lie to us in this world of all things that we can't trust ourselves that's our hearts Generally, that's not my first... My first thought is everything out there is bad and, and what I really need to do is just kind of trust in myself a bit. But that's not what the Bible is saying. That's not what God's telling us. What should we fear the most as far as what's going to be deceitful is our own hearts. Take that, Disney. <laughs> do what you want. Um, of all the things that lie to us, our own hearts are the worst. So if our own hearts are deceitful, we're not honest with ourselves. What does it say? Jeremiah... Um, 17 oh, I'm on there, yeah. oh you're on the yeah the first passage there so if our own hearts are deceitful that means we're, we can't be honest with ourselves because well first of all it also says we can't even understand it we that means we can't be honest with other people the way that we would love to love others and we're also not honest with God so this Where is it? Uh, 17, 17. Nine. yeah Sorry, normally we have like Bibles with page numbers and that's helpful too. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> no, it's not. No, I've got to find out. Okay. Yeah, verse nine. Yep. There we are. Okay. And, this, and the, I mean, that ending of that first part says that it's beyond cure. So if our hearts are beyond cure, like what kind of hope do we have? Not only that, we can't even understand our own lack of honesty. We can't even understand what's going on inside of us. We do things we don't understand we do. We make dumb decisions that we don't understand why we did them, but sometimes we do those things. 
we can't always it's 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 not a, a completely rational experience this uh this lack of honesty in our lives so maybe two reasons that we aren't honest is one we have guilt and two we have shame all humans have this guilt is i've done something wrong shame is i am something wrong and we hide from both of these and hiding from who we really are that that's that's shame it's a deeper rooted issue how to fix the problem when when we are what's wrong if we've done something wrong, maybe we can figure out, oh, I need to ask forgiveness or whatever. What if shame is, is that we are wrong? How do we fix that problem if we are wrong? Shame itself, it even has a biological component. Component. There's a lot of studies that have been done on this, that even before we understand and process what that feeling of shame is, we, we feel it, we experience it. If I tell Colin he's done something wrong, immediately he hides his face like this, like he doesn't even think about it, or hides his face like that. Like that's like he's not thinking. I am shameful now, and I want to hide from my father. Like that's just that's just not a thing. And, and the same thing for us. Our like it's a biological experience that we get first, and of course we think about it, and it's and it becomes a psychological issue because we think about it like, oh man, I am a horrible person. Who wants to show that to the world? No one wants to show that to the world. And so it, it's a biological problem, and then it becomes a psychological problem because we keep on thinking it through. And guilt and shame, though, they're accepted. Doing something wrong and being something wrong, they're, they're connected. Um, because uh, if I do enough wrong things, then eventually what I'm going to think is I'm, I'm wrong. And then any time I do something wrong, that's just going to prove to the fact that I am, I am what's wrong. So it's just kind of like constant uh, spiral down into loneliness, into hiding. And shame forces us to hide. Because we don't want to show out who we really are. Because we're not going to be accepted. We'll be, ost- we'll be ostracized. Hiding is not an honest way to live, but it's the way we choose to live. Because we all kind of hide our parts of our lives from each other. So we show the best, and that's why social media works so well, and that's why social media also makes us so sad. Because it's not really who we are. And how can we be honest if we're hiding? Being honest is being able to be your true self. And if you think that true self is shameful, then nobody's ever going to see it. So honesty is connected with guilt, it's connected with shame, it's connected with loneliness. I mean, it's a massive issue, but this honesty problem that we have. Here's another thing that God says about brokenness. This is in Romans 3. You don't need to turn there. Uh, It's just like a hammer over and over and over. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they don't know, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It just keeps going. It's kind of like, all right, Paul, who wrote Romans, he's like, can't, can't you stop for a second there and give me like a breath? This is everyone's problem. Is not even one person is perfect. It's a spiritual problem because our hearts are problem, problematic. We don't fear God. It's a psychological problem. We choose to be dishonest because we fear rejection. And it's a biological problem. Because we can't help but feel the shame that leads us to hide, that leads us away from honesty. And we're deceitful through that before God, in ourselves, and toward others. And now I'm realizing, there's an illustration I was going to use that was completely visual that we will not be able to use today. It was a painting that Michael Brown painted. A lot of you guys knew Michael Brown. Um, uh, He's around Redeemer things from time to time. He might actually show up at lunch later. Um... We have this painting, uh, it's kind of depicting World War I, where there are um, soldiers and civilians kind of in this p- 
pit, this brill, like this a uh, bricked off pit, and they're all kind of like grasping, but there's like no way, no way for them to get out. They're just kind of all stuck in there, all together, and kind of mangled. It's, it's kind of disturbing. Maybe it's better we don't see it. I don't know. Um, so the reason why I picked that painting though was because I think it illustrated our hopelessness that we have, like our our problem with with honesty. And we're all in this together, even though we all feel alone. We all have that problem, and, and by ourselves, no one, we, we can't be rescued. We need someone from outside that frame, that literal frame for Michael's painting, someone from outside our frame to reach in and dig us out and rescue us. Image management, um, what does that look like? Because we do not like the idea of that hopeless, kind of rejected, dishonest person, so we craft another image for ourselves that's a little bit better, we think a little bit more tidy, a little bit more acceptable, um, and we try and manage that, we put a lot of time and effort into that. So what does that look like? Well, with ourselves, we like to manage that image, image with ourselves. And with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we'd probably see ourselves more than needy than how we come across. We'd probably be okay with being needy, because we, we all are. I guarantee every single person in these rooms is needy. Not letting others know your needs means you have a problem with honesty. And if you don't let other people know, then others aren't going to be able to help. And then if we continue that, we've unconsciously created this image management factory that we get to do all the time. We learn how to hide well. Religious people love, to, or don't love, but really know really well how to hide well, how to be okay on the outside. And then we get to stay alone. Image management with other people um, can kind of crop up in how we talk to others. Are you willing to love someone enough to be honest with them? That's a real love, to, be, to lovingly be honest with somebody. Or do you fear rejection so much that we're never actually to our true selves? Do people really know you? Not the nice kind of Sunday worship gathering you, but like the real you. Do people really know who you are? And with God, how are we dishonest with God? How do we manage, try and manage our image with God? Well, we don't think these passages that we've read really defines us. We don't think we're really that bad. Like, is my throat really oh, like an open grave? Ah, it's, I mean, maybe it's kind of bad, but it's not like an open grave. That sounds like really bad. You know, I'm 51% good. And we have like this ability to be smug about our terror. That's so arrogant. We, we are arrogant people. We ate our Easter sweets early and with chocolate all over the face to say, oh, it wasn't me. I'm okay. <laughs> and if we're honest with God, we confess to him more often. We'd be okay with needing to confess. We would ask for his forgiveness. We would do it often. We aren't honest, though, because we fear that rejection. So we think we're in an impossible spot. We must be dishonest to be accepted. But then the acceptance we get is shallow because it's not really who, are, who we are. So we are beyond cure by ourselves. What we need is Jesus outside of our frame, outside of our experience, outside of our dishonest hearts, being able to free us and give us something else. So we're radically accepted through Jesus' rejection. So even with our honesty problem, Jesus still sees us, and uh, he sees our deceitful hearts. And even as Kathleen read earlier, while we were still enemies, Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. So even in our dishonesty, Jesus still uh, strives and pursues us. We have psychological, biological, spiritual limitations, and Jesus knows this. And he's come to free us in that. And we get to be radically accepted because he was rejected. Uh, Psalm 118, 22 and 23 says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So there was a stone that the builders have rejected, and that became like the, the foundational stone to a building. If Stephen was here, he could tell me exactly what, the, what cornerstone actually functions in a building. I think it's the first thing that you lay. I think, let's just say it's the first thing that you lay. And without that cornerstone, the whole building, how could it even exist? Because it needs a first piece. It's laid first. It's the most important part of the building. Without the cornerstone, it exists. So Jesus is that rejected stone through the cross. 
He was rejected by the political system. He was rejected by the religious system. He was rejected by his own followers, especially when he was on the cross. He took on everything evil we have ever done and ever will do. And for that, he was rejected by the Father. But through that also, he's the cornerstone. So he was rejected by the builders, but through that, he became the cornerstone. He is what everything is built on. If the cross didn't happen, we have no hope. We'll stay stuck. For everyone who comes to the cross, though, Jesus' rejection means our acceptance. That's the great thing about it. This is why Jesus' death on the cross actually matters for us today. It's not just something in the past or something in the future. It actually matters for us today because that's what it buys for us. That Isaiah 53 passage says, The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So the cross was punishment for Jesus. It's peace for us. The cross meant wounds for Jesus, healing for us. So peace, peace with who? Well, first, peace with God. Because our deceitful hearts have created this rift with God, one that ripples out and affects everything. If we have a rift with God, we have a rift with all other relationships, with ourselves, with other people, with this world that we, were, that we live in. But Jesus gives us peace with God, and that affects everything, with ourselves, with others in this world that we live in. And then what do we get? We also get healing. For a deceitful heart, we need healing. And healing looks like uh, being free from that guilt and shame that stop us from really being dishonest. The punishment we deserved on Christ, the wounds we deserved on Christ, for us, peace and healing. He was rejected so that we can be accepted. And that's why the cross matters in our daily lives. That's why the cross matters in this moment as I'm speaking. That's why the cross will matter tomorrow morning when you don't want to go to work. Or Wednesday afternoon when you have that really annoying coworker who you know, starts doing whatever that annoying thing is. <laughs> And one of the best images of our acceptance from Matthew 3, I think, comes from Jesus' own baptism. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, before he started like going out healing and teaching and stuff like that, he gets baptized with John the Baptist. So he comes to John the Baptist, he gets baptized, and as he's coming out of the water, uh, the Holy Spirit that was like something like a dove comes like descending out of heaven, and the Father wretches like the heavens open, and he yells out, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. It's a big kind of like, that's my boy. He's excited. He's super excited to see Jesus actually following through in that way. And through Jesus' work, that rejection that Jesus experienced and our acceptance because of it, we are accepted by God and now in the exact same way. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, is descended from God in our hearts. And when the Father sees us, he's like, that's my boy. That's my girl. I'm so excited about this person. The Father says, I love her. I'm well pleased with her. The father can't contain himself. He's one of those really annoying parents that only talks about his kids all the time. <laughs> and that doesn't happen when we do nice things. He's not like, oh, I'm so excited that Christina made a good choice. I mean, maybe he is, but not nearly as excited just to be able to know Christina. And it's not when we do something good that God comes to us. It's, that it's actually the opposite. Like, we, we don't go to church because we're nice. We're not part of a church because we're nice. We're not nice, which is why we need Jesus to come to us. God has done something good, and he draws us in. You see, God knows how deceitful our hearts are, even more than we do. And yet, and yet, he still radically accepted us for what Jesus has done on our behalf. That is amazing. That's real. Another great story um, in the New Testament is the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son, where the youngest son takes his inheritance early, basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead, give me your money. He goes off, spends it out, parties, drinking, gambling, women, all the stuff that partying would be doing. He ends up broke, as you eventually do when you kind of live that way, and decides, I'm really hungry, I don't have any really food, 
But I know if I go back to my father, if I, maybe if I have a really good apology, and I go back to my father who has a lot of money, maybe I could just become a worker. I could never be a son again because I've kind of ruined that, burned that bridge. But maybe I can go back and you know at least be, become a worker and get a wage and not have to kind of you know live, live in pig slop for the rest of my life. So he starts contemplating his apology, but how does the father receive him in that story? What it says, and we don't have time to look at it right now, is the father sees his son who's a long way off, and he runs out to him. He doesn't even hear the son's apology. The son crafted, you know, a 40-minute sermon. This is a three-point reason of why I'm bad and why you should accept me, blah, blah, blah. The father does not care about that at all. He just wants, he's happy the son is coming back. So he goes out to him, and he accepts him, even without the apology speech. And it's not like the son becomes a worker. The, the son becomes a son again. And that's what radical acceptance looks like. It doesn't look like if we confess really well, God is going to love us. If we do really good things, God is going to love us. God already loves you. How much are you going to accept that from him? Accepting his love is a massively hard thing. But our God doesn't first require an apology. He runs to us and embraces us. And not as some kind of second-class worker, as his own child. He cares about his son a lot. Do you think the father loves Jesus? Yeah, I think he loves him, right? He probably does. In the eternal trinity or whatever it's called, however that works out. I think he cares a lot for his son. He cares the same amount for you. I don't even know what that means. But we are radically accepted because of Jesus' rejection. And if we're radically accepted, that changes our lives. So now we get to be radically changed. So we are dishonest. Yes, we have that problem. But through Jesus, we get the acceptance that we've been craving. And if we have that acceptance through Jesus, that actually changes us. It gives us, it gives us a new foundation to be honest with ourselves, with other people, um, and with God. So if we are accepted, now honesty and acceptance can go hand in hand. They're not in different boats. They're in the same boat with us. So how can we um, be honest with God? Well, first, we know we can easily be dishonest with God. Right? We've talked about it a lot. Uh, dishonesty before, before God means that we have to bear that guilt and shame on ourselves. If we're dishonest before God, where does that guilt and shame go? It's on our back. We have to eat it. It's part of us. It becomes part of who we are. We were never meant to bear that burden ourselves. And so if we get that acceptance through Jesus, that means we can be honest with God. We do not have to bear that burden of shame and guilt ourselves. We get to give it away. That's an amazing thing, to not have that weight. Because we can't handle that weight. We end up depressed, we end up anxious, we end up all kinds of things. And so we don't have to bear it, we get to give it away. And did you know that? He, it's, not, it's not a surprise to him. He's not like, oh, you did that bad thing the other day? Interesting, well, okay, yeah, all right, thank you, I'll go give you, 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 I'll accept your confession. He already knows it, he wants us to give it away. I mean, that Jeremiah um, 17 passage that uh, Kathleen read, was the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And the very next verse, in verse 10, says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. God knows. He knows everything. He's just waiting to, to, um, for us to, to be able to give him that stuff. And we looked at this idea of being honest before God when we were in 1 John. Uh, when John writing to us says, if, if we confess our sins, if we're honest before God where we don't measure up, he is faithful. He is just. And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we're honest before God, confess where we're wrong before him, we don't have to bear that weight of guilt. We don't have to bear that weight of shame. He's faithful. He forgives. He purifies. And not only are we freed from that weight of, of, of guilt and shame, if he purifies, that means our hearts are pure. And deceitful hearts don't have to be deceitful anymore. So we also get to be relieved of being deceitful all the time. And so that looks like uh, 
if you've heard the word repent, that's what that being honest before God looks like repenting, aka just realigning our lives with God. <laughs> like drawing our walls. Yeah. <laughs> so if we're honest before God, that means we're going to be constantly looking for opportunities for us to realign our lives with Him because it's only the best for us. So if we're honest with ourselves, so that's before God, if we're honest with ourselves, it means we're not going to live in pride or self hatred. Pride or self hatred both, they come from different places, but they have the same product. Pride is I'm better than I. Than I than I am, and self-hatred is I'm worse than I am. And both end up kind of lonely, because pride is I don't need anybody else. Self-hatred is nobody else can love me. So whether you're prideful or filled with self-hatred, um, both people live out, live lonely lives, and both need to rely on Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1, I told you, we're just gonna, I'm reading loads of verses here, but 2 Thessalonians 1 says, uh, this is Paul talking, says, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. I'm just going to read that again because we we'll talk about that in a second here. We constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So how are you made worthy? After the things that we do. Our God makes us worthy of his calling. So first, our God does that, right? Secondly, the thing that Paul's writing here, and that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and every good deed. So how do we do good things? How do we live good lives? Not through our passion, not through our goodness, but through God's power working through us. By his power, he may bring to fruition every desire and goodness. And then uh, the last part of those verses is we pray this, so that the name of Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of God. So the way that Jesus is glorified isn't for our own strength, isn't in our own ability. It's through the grace of God. That's something that's given to us. This is all God working through us. This is none of us doing stuff first and then God saying, oh, that's great. It's God working the good things in us first and there being overflow in how we live to others. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't just how we are rescued from this world or, or how we're rescued from uh, eternity. It's not just how we're saved, it's also how we're being saved. And we rely on Jesus to do what he said he'll do. And Christian, that means Christian maturity isn't trying harder. It's actually relying more. It probably means giving up more, giving up in a, in a better way. And this is where the Holy Spirit is alive and active in our lives. Romans 8 says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, what? The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead gave Him his, the resurrection is living in us. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your bodies because the Spirit lives in you. That same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is alive and active in our lives. Jesus is raised from the dead. And we get to participate in that. So if you struggle with the self-hatred side, oh, I'm not good enough to ever be loved, um, this is true of you. The most important person in the world sees you as the most important person in the world. You're loved and you're given a new heart to live this out in honesty. For those of you who might struggle more on the pride side of things, this is also true of you. You don't have what it takes. None of us do. And it's possible maybe you aren't as great as you think you are. It's possible. <laughs> And if you continue to rely on yourself, you're going to live a very small and unsatisfying life. You're better off relying on the Spirit for more than you can think. And so if we're going to be honest with ourselves, that means we're going to rely on Christ for everything. Lastly, what does it mean to be honest with others? Being honest with God and ourselves. So that's the foundation that we're talking about. It allows us to be honest with others. It frees us because the foundation of who we are is more secure than our ego. It's more secure than our latest achievement. It's more secure than our job position. It's more secure than whatever, however we define how we're doing. 
What the Bible says over and over and over is that our radical acceptance is for something. It's not just we're radically accepted for freedom's sake. We're radically accepted to be a part of what God is doing in this world, of the mission that he's given us. God is on a mission that we get to be a part of, and we're all called, called to participate in it. And maybe the, um, the best verse that I was thinking of that, that would uh, describe this is in Galatians. It says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Mm. Carry each other's burdens. If we aren't honest with other people, with ourselves, or with God, really, how can we expect to do that? Carry, I, I can't carry my own burdens. Yeah, you're right. You can't carry your own burdens. You were never meant to. So your God gives out how it would be a tragedy if God gave somebody an amazing gift and kept it to themselves, right? We'd be like, oh, they should share it with the world. The same, the, the same goes on the negative side with burdens. It would be a tragedy if you were to experience a burden and to keep it to yourself. That's not what a family does. That's not how we're supposed to live. And that also means that not being honest by saying you have no problems means you're preventing someone from, as Paul puts it, fulfilling the law of Christ. We need your burdens. You need my burdens. I got plenty. Don't worry. You got to <laughs> We have been given burdens in this life that we aren't meant to bear alone. And often the way that God chooses to work is through his people. That is often supernaturally God works through his people to be able to bear these things with each other. Now on the other side, if we only understand our need to rely on Jesus, our radical acceptance in him, that frees us to really carry each other's burdens because we don't have the power ourselves to do it. And we should be honest with that. You can't do it. You can't by yourself. So, and if we rely on that, we're going to shrink back from that mission of carrying each other's burdens. But if we're not relying on that, if we're relying on Christ and that resurrection power within us through the Holy Spirit, only if we're honest with that, then will we share. And only if we're honest, will we be able to begin to help. Now, just a quick side note on what honesty is not. Um, you might know a person is like, that says something dumb or something completely like, arrogant like just being honest like hey you look dumb today just being honest you know it's like the, the, the honesty is allows you to kind of basically say whatever you want to say that's not honesty that's just kind of arrogance or being a jerk hopefully we all got that but i feel like we need to put that um in ourselves the true honesty really shows itself in humility because we're not honest before god but with ourselves we're going to be arrogant so that's something that it also saves us from as well now, people who get Jesus' radical acceptance, though, are going to you're comfortable with you talking about your own failures because there's a foundation of safety below and, and deeper and stronger than whether we've made it in this life, quote-unquote, or not. And so being honest towards others means being real with our own brokenness and with others' brokenness. So what does this radical change look like? Is, it, is this radical? Uh, does it look kind of crazy on the outside? I think it just looks very normal on the outside. It might mean seeking someone out, learning where they need help and praying for them and let them know that you're praying for them. How amazing would it be? I mean, first of all, if you're not praying for someone a redeemer, like, please do that. that. That's what churches do. We should do that. Um, but secondly, how amazing is it to get, if you've experienced that before, a text from somebody who's like, just want you to know I'm praying about this thing for you this week. That's amazingly encouraging. Not just to know that someone cares for you, but that someone is going to the Father, the one who can affect the change that we really need on your behalf. That's amazing. It's really easy to do. It doesn't require very much. Uh, in, in your core groups, it might be uh, something that um, you can even work through. If you know your neighbor is going through something difficult, make some food. Nobody says no to biscuits. Just make some food. Bring it over. That could be an easiest way to be able to, um, to radically be honest with being able to care for somebody. Or if, here's another thing too. Um, if you've ever had a chat with a work colleague about you know, some kind of 
really hard thing that they're going through. First, it's amazing that they would be able to trust you with that information. Just telling them, maybe you might feel really awkward and scared to say, I can I pray, or, or ask them either way, depending on the relationship, can I pray for you about that? There has been a study, a big massive study done about people who have um, chosen to follow Jesus. And one of the three major factors was the fact that other Christians were praying for them. These are people who you know, don't follow Jesus, probably don't believe in God, etc. But even just the idea of them knowing that you care for them and showing that you're caring for them by talking to God for them is massive. And also, prayer for them in their lives, is, is that prayer itself is good too. Uh, it also might just kind of end up being something practical. I mean, people who have volunteered to watch Colin for me and Christina um, is a very practical, small thing. It's, it's life-giving. I mean, it's great to have a night out. That's, that's great. But just the idea that other people are actually thinking about us, like, oh, we don't have any family here. Like, we don't have the normal kind of connections that people might have. And someone thought about that and cared for us. That's amazing. That's a great way to kind of help us bear the burden of parenting, which can be heavy, as parents know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jesus bought this gift for us. And while we were still his enemies, he saw our dark hearts and he died for them. He took on our deceit and he was broken for it. Which is why... We break the bread. He also took on our rejection, and his blood was spilled for it. Jesus died so that we won't die. More than that, we wouldn't just live a neutral, kind of get by kind of life, but he died. That he would, that we would experience life to its fullest, and surely some of that has to mean that we would be honest with ourselves and our hearts and with others, and that's what we get to celebrate when we come to this table. This table signifies our acceptance before God. Jesus is the host, and He invites us to come, and so we come in gratitude, we come in joy, we come in humility, um, we come in reverence, we come uh, in new life that we get to live in him. And this is for everyone who relies on Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. And if you don't rely on Jesus yet, then uh, this might be just time to kind of think about what that might look like. Please don't um, do something, you know, eat or drink or something that you don't actually believe in. Take the opportunity to contemplate what it might mean for you. What we're going to do is we're going to sing some songs. This is normally what we do at Dulcimer. Well, I think we'll do the same thing here. Um, we're going to sing some songs as we sing. If you can find a way to come up, especially if you're stuck in the back there, um, rip off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. Um, and in doing so, as you're doing that, what we're saying is that we rely on Jesus even more than we rely on food. Like we rely on him for all sorts of things, especially for us to be able to be honest. And that's what we're doing as we're eating and drinking to him. We aren't honest and we fear rejection. And through Jesus' rejection, we were radically accepted. And now we're radically changed, free to be honest before God with others and ourselves. Let me pray. God, we thank you that as we come to you um, as a family uh, in a different place, um, we know that you aren't limited to uh, church buildings or even pubs or wherever else. Um, Lord, you are active and working in this world in all places. And in our lives, so we we come to you knowing that uh, we don't deserve your goodness. And Lord, we also confess the times where we have tried to work to deserve it ourselves. Because there's nothing we could do or ever could have done to deserve it. So Lord, we thank you for this gift that you've given us. Uh, Through your death, through your resurrection, we don't have to live small lives. We don't have to live dishonest lives. 
We don't have to live lives uh, where we're in hiding. So I pray that you would free us um, from the guilt and the shame that we like to cling on to for ourselves and allow us to live in the new life that you give through your life. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 Amen.